This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by AstroPad Studio, the ultimate iPad app for artists. AstroPad Studio turns your iPad into a drawing tablet by mirroring your favorite Mac or PC desktop apps directly onto your iPad. You get the flexibility of your Apple Pencil combined with the power of full desktop apps like Photoshop and Illustrator. The app is packed with features to customize your workflow, such as programmable gestures, custom pressure curves, and pressure smoothing and unlimited shortcuts. AstroPad Studio is trusted by leading design agencies and animation studios around the world. Millions of artists already rely on AstroPad Studio for Mac, and now it's available for PC artists too. If you're ready to take your creative workflow to the next level, you can start your 30-day free trial of AstroPad Studio today. Visit astropad.com via the link in our show notes to get started. Plus, Beyond the Studio listeners save 10% on your first year when you enter the promo code BEYOND at checkout. We're really excited um, to be speaking with Melbourne born and based artist uh, Ash Keating and um, Ash and I got connected on Instagram I think just following each other's work and I don't remember how I first discovered or found your work but I think I mean personally as a painter someone who's interested in large-scale work I was just um, immediately impressed with what you were doing and really interested in the projects you were working on and yeah, and then we've gotten to chat a little bit online, and I just appreciated how open you were, even in those brief interactions. And so uh, we really wanted to bring you on the podcast to talk more about your practice and what you do. And so really appreciate you being here and being willing to share your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, um, it's great to finally chat after doing that on message for so long yeah. on Instagram. And yeah, I guess for me, I think it was just seeing a number of your works which traversed the studio and outdoor walls, but they weren't anything other than unique. Like they were, they were painting in the studio, but on outdoor walls. And in mm-hmm. a way, yeah. that's always how I've tried to approach my 
exterior work is it, it doesn't it doesn't really kind of feed into that notion of street art or anything mm. like that it's it's just a way for me to expand on painting on a on a large scale outdoors I guess yeah yeah I love that way of thinking about the work and I feel like that may be a good place to start because we don't usually ask artists a lot about their creative process because so much of the podcast is focused on everything uh, you know beyond the studio but I feel like in this case uh, because some of our questions around navigating career and finding opportunity relate to your process and especially the scale of your work so I wondered if in this case you wouldn't mind describing a bit of your creative process for us or just uh, what it is that you make. Sure. Well, I guess I've been painting for well over 20 years, as well as making a lot of other contemporary art projects, conceptual works, installation, video. But it was, I guess, in the late 90s and early 2000s that I was exploring abstraction and or the intersection of abstraction and landscape within the art studio at high school. I mean, if we go all the way back, at, you know, I was learning to fly light aircraft with my grandmother in the rural area of, mm-hmm. of Victoria, the high country where there's lots of, land, uh, you know, dry, burnt kind of, and lush landscape kind of mixed together. You know, I would see the late afternoon shadows on trees as we were flying over the landscape and then I I took photos and brought that into the, the studio when I was young and then you know years of kind of experimenting I started kind of popping aerosol cans over the tops of enamels on on canvas and then doing that on a larger scale on walls because you know the limitations even of like a large two by two meter canvas felt restrictive you know, I, I started going out at nights and throwing pots of paint at walls and bursting aerosol cans and just using that expansive field of, of a wall to really kind of uh, explore. Well, at the time, you know, it was it was just a way of kind of painting as an adventure and, and just, mm-hmm. you know, as a young, like a teenager or a young 20-year-old, I guess, just being able to physically move and paint. And I guess <laughs> I played a lot of basketball when I was young and I still, I, I watch a lot of basketball in between paint drying in the studio still. And you know, like, I guess it was that kind of energy coming into painting. And yeah, I guess that's how it all started for me. Yeah, your approach to painting feels really um, physical and almost athletic and it like completely immersive and the scale of your work is so environmental too so it's it's interesting to hear about how you got started experimenting with work in that vein and maybe this came a little bit later but I'm interested to hear about your entry point into creating some of this large-scale outdoor work and maybe some of your first public projects like did you find there was any sort of immediate interest in what you were doing or was this a constant or a conscious translation from kind of, you know, doing this work DIY to starting to find, um, you know, spaces and places that wanted to commission you to make this type of work? Yeah, sure. So I guess I was studying an undergrad in painting sort of 2001 to 2003 
at the time, you know, I was at, at nights I would go out into the city and find, this is well before abstraction in public space or street art was a thing. I started just finding blank walls and experimenting with different ways of, of applying paint on these walls. From throwing paint, popping cans, but then also finding fire extinguishers, pressurizing them with air and paint, and being able to paint, you know, two stories high, but still standing on the ground and, and doing it quite quickly. You know, being able to make quite an ambitious big scale wall painting in, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, if that. Uh, a lot of my, most of my work, pretty much all of it, back in 2003, four, five, was all um, unsanctioned, all illegal, if you like. But, you know, it mm -hmm. was always, it was always done site specifically in interesting spaces that people would question whether it was public art. People wouldn't necessarily, mm. the owners of the walls weren't going to be upset the next day, if you like. It wasn't that type of unsanctioned work. It was more finding places that kind of were interesting to me visually and I thought I could add to. So in answer to your question, I guess it was coming, I was doing that not under my own name, but I'd, I'd meet people, you know, at, at events or at a bar or something, even many years later. And, you know, it would come up in conversation that I'd painted this particular wall or that particular wall and they would be like, oh my gosh, I loved that. I saw that and it did so much mm. for me. And, you know, that, the reoccurring kind of conversations that it meant a lot to people, uh, particular walls, that, that fed back into me wanting to return to this in a big way in 2012. Between 2006, when I did an honours degree at the VCA, I made a lot of site-specific, conceptual video art projects related to environment, waste. That's a whole other chapter in my practice. But overall, through that whole time, I would meet people that would tell me about how much this other painting meant to them. And yeah, and I, I knew that I knew that it meant a lot to me to do it as well. Like I love painting like that. So that's that's what kind of that was definitely what brought me back to it. A big part of what brought me back to painting in 2012. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear about because I feel like when we talk with artists about their creative practices, it's never linear, but maybe it is sort of cyclical in some way, like to hear that you had this whole chapter of your life where you were making work in a totally different vein, and maybe that plays a role in your practice today, but that, you know, you were making these paintings really early on in your life, but it was only after this long kind of seasonal break, if you want to call it that, that you returned to um, that type of painting and then really kind of dove into the work that you're making currently. Yeah. Because I, yeah. No, certainly. It did, look, what I did between that point of time, lots of large-scale collaborative works which were performative and I was working with videographers, photographers, it all informs the way that I, that I make work at times. But more so than ever when I went back into painting in 2012, I made a work. I painted one rooftop where it was just me, no cameras, no 
worrying about documentation, just finding the love for painting again. But it was within months mm -hmm. of that that I had an opportunity with an institutional gallery and I made a video work where I filmed myself painting an industrial building that had popped up on the edge of industrial suburbia and it's basically called the urban growth zone where you know natural natural or farming landscape is kind of turned into industrial areas on the on the outside of of the city and talk about i guess jobs to keep myself going i mean through that whole time like you know it was a challenge being an artist and at that time I was a removalist uh, I was driving a van past this building that I saw just in the middle of a field I was like oh that that's a great great concrete building and look at all that landscape around it immediately I came up with the concept mm -hmm. and it was about kind of filming the process from a distance like where I saw the building but right up close macro of me painting this replication of the landscape. There's basically fields of canola, yellow canola flowers, and the horizon line in the distance. I, I came up with this idea, I'd just paint layers of hiding this building, so as it almost feels like it's returning to nature. And so I had to come up with, with a short, with a, it was only a 5K budget project, but I got a lot of people on board, and including, you know, paint support, everything. I'm always, especially in the early days, I was always very industrious being, with being able to get people on board, but obviously still pay, mm. pay people, you know, a decent wage for what they're doing, but, but make ambitious projects happen. I uh, was able to get a few friends together called Camera Club at the time, and we shot from all different distances on five and seven Ds and I put together a three screen video called West Park Proposition which shows the transformation of this building being painted within well it took about eight hours of the day but the three channel is just a two minute uh, conceptual video. I love that description of uh, just the resourcefulness that goes into some of those early projects too, um, especially when you're trying to generate support for your work and, and to work at a really large scale and take on ambitious projects. Um, I know that's something we've talked with other artists about, um, just how they, you know, there's so much upfront investment that goes into it of time, labor, resources, money, whatever it is. And you really do have to put in a lot of that upfront to be able to build enough momentum to where, you know, maybe you are able to bring in larger opportunities. But I remember first moving out to San Francisco and wanting to start translating my own work onto larger walls. And I had done a lot of commercial mural painting when I first graduated from art school, but very separate from my painting practice. You know, it was lots of kind of more illustrative work, uh, like painting logos on walls type of thing. But I was also really interested in how to scale up the abstract work I was making in my studio. And so one of the first mural projects I did out here was also just a, like a blank wall in the neighborhood I saw. I thought that would make a great spot for, you know, a large outdoor painting, um, but didn't really have a budget or resources to do it. And was really lucky that there were a lot of great places in the neighborhood where I lived that were able to contribute paint and loan out, you know, a scissor lift equipment for free. And so I think that mentality of just going out and, you know, being resourceful and trying to get different types of support for your work is definitely a way to, to make things happen. For sure. And especially early on, like, I guess, you know, 
these days I've got a massive paint in inventory for uh, because I, you know project to project I just you know keep on acquiring more and more paint for that that gets left over and being able to have a big studio and being able to draw from that is wonderful now but back then very early days like it was all about getting free free pots of paint like little tiny pots and then mm -hmm. that that was the early early days and then obviously going all around town to find the cheapest mist tints so often when i was starting out the colors that i was selecting wasn't the colors that i'd selected conceptually or you know wanted those particular colors it was just whatever i could get yeah. and then bring together and that that's fine because it, i mean you know that's the chance that you get with that and what what you create you learn so much from that as well but i mean an interesting story with that project which i was talking about in 2012 with the it's called west park proposition it's out in the western industrial area right near there there was a paint shop uh called paint clearance center and i think i saw online like they were selling like 20 liter tubs of a particular paint for the cheapest i could see it all over town and i called up and i was like how much of this have you got and how much of that have you got and the person on the, uh, the line he was like well, why don't you come in? What are you doing? What do you need all this for, you know? And why don't you come in and we'll, we'll see if we can mix a few of these colours together. And mm -hmm. when I went in and met him, he was just around the corner from this wall. I explained what I was doing. He was so excited about the project and was willing to... He had all these other paints that he was able to tint that weren't expensive paints, but he was able to help me out because it was you know, essentially an ephemeral project, even though it lasted a few years on the wall, but it was mainly painting for camera. So he was like, it doesn't matter the quality of the paint, right? And he was able to give me everything for one to $2 a litre. And I needed upwards of wow. two to 300 litres, especially for this large scale project. And like I said, it was only a 5K project in total, which included paying the camera people, hiring a van, you know, it was trying to make, you know, in my mind, I was like trying to make a Matthew Barney film for like 5k, you know, <laughs> but it yeah. was, it's just like, how do you, how do you get to that quality? How do you, how do you make something like that or Isaac Julian or, you know, multi-screen channel work, you know, I'd seen a number of uh, his works, for example, at a few Biennales and was like, oh, how do you make a multi-screen work like that? You know, so you're limited with the budget. So anything you can find, and you can come across people that hear your story and hear your ambition, what you're planning on doing, what you're hoping on doing, your passion for that. People respond to that. And it's surprising and it's, and it's lovely to go on that journey. That paint shop I, I kept on going back to and still do at times, even though it's a little way away from my studio. And, you know, the couple that run that paint shop, they, they love seeing the progress of my practice over the last 10 mm. years. Yeah. It, it gives them great excitement. You know, obviously, I don't necessarily use all the types of paint that they use, uh, that they sell, sorry, in the projects that I do. But whenever I need you know, something that they they can offer, I 
I, I enjoy going back. In fact, they moved their shop a few years later, just a few doors down into a new space. And I painted the inside of their shop for them in okay. return for just continuing, like for, in, in return for, you know, the help, but also just mm -hmm. to be able to go back and still get supported if I, if I needed it. But that was nice to be able to give back to, you know. And when I, <laughs> it's funny because I, I go back and they're like, everyone that comes in always asks, they're, they're, they're buying some paint, they look around and they're like, what? How is all this paint on the walls, you know? They, <laughs> they love that they've got the story to go yeah, with their awesome. customers, you know, and that eventuates, I guess, behind an ambitious project and trying to get something to happen with little or... <laughs> with, with, without the budget, that you would be able to just buy everything you need, not talk to anyone, and mm -hmm. just go about it without having that engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like sometimes those constraints become an opportunity for community engagement or those relationships that, you know, started with trying to meet like a real need that you had, um, have been able to evolve and continue over time. And, um, I think that's a really wonderful way of approaching your practice too, at whatever stage you're at. And yeah, even if you're just starting out and you're just trying to come up with creative ways to kind of, you know, execute the ambitious vision that you have in your mind to, let other people into that process and allow them to get excited about what you're doing and that, you know, maybe there is an opportunity for collaboration there. Yeah, definitely. Something I think that's interesting for for listeners, if they're painters or, or working in any field, more these days in terms of the way that I work. And I noticed when you had your large scale painting commission, you purchased way more paint than you needed because you didn't want to, well, I'm, I mean, this is my thinking, is that you just wanted to make sure, I mean, you had the budget, you wanted to make sure you had everything you needed and you didn't worry about trying to fit that into the budget and making sure you had this particular amount. That's the way I guess I, and, and you had some left over at the end. I mean, that's the way that I work these days compared to how I used to work. It's, it's, it's almost the contrast. I really, mm -hmm. I just keep on buying and buying and buying, you know, artist paints. And half of my paint, if not most of it, actually ends up on the ground because my studio painting is so layered and it's, I, I work with a lot of water to create the, the flow and the gravity uh, movement within the paintings. But I don't worry about kind of what I'm losing as much as just making sure that I've got it. I've always got everything I need to make sure I'm making quality studio paintings. And I guess that's the contrast now, mm -hmm. now, like to back then where, you know, I, I was always just grabbing whatever I could and the cheapest options. Back then, obviously I wasn't studio painting and I wasn't creating something that was careful and nuanced and something that would live on for a long time. But this also, this idea also extends into my commissions and my out, outdoor projects these days. Everything I use, while I, I am resourceful at times and I do, I do get a lot of discontinued paints. For example, I got lots of one particular house paint 
which they were just changing the labels. It's a good quality paint, but they were just changing the label design. So they were selling a huge quantity of this paint at their trade outlets. And I just was tuned in enough to realize that and bought thousands of dollars worth of that paint. But I'm also, if I've got big mural projects, I'm also buying way more of an expensive color than I might need for that particular project. Mm -hmm. So I don't run out in the heat of the moment. and so to speak. Yeah, I think that's what I was most concerned about. But honestly, that was the first time I'd really been in a position where I could just, you know, buy all the materials I needed and didn't really have to worry about it. And I just like you were describing that first project, the mural project I did here where I was going around to, you know, businesses to see if they could donate um, materials was uh, same, you know, they like opened up the mist tint section. It's like whatever we have here you can use. So your palette's sort of dictated for you. So, you know, you make the work that you can within those constraints. But it really um, was amazing to have finally like have a budget to work with where all you have to think about is your vision and you're not so strapped for trying to you know kind of throw things together and be really scrappy but I'm curious to know like you know the goal of I think for a lot of artists in doing those overly ambitious but kind of resourceful projects is to kind of get momentum so that they start to generate other similar opportunities or they are you know more competitive for those bigger budget projects where they're able to really just focus on their vision and I'm curious if that started to happen for you did that that project you know build some momentum or lead into other things or what was the process and uh, taking on other similar public projects back in 2012-2013. I was really fortunate at the time. The The three-channel video which was shown at uh, Monash University in a group exhibition of about eight artists. It's the first time I'd kind of commercially editioned a video and, you know, I, I to be honest, I hadn't even really kind of thought about editioning the video leading into presenting it. But because they had a, a core audience, one of the curators or the, the vice director of the National Gallery of Victoria saw the work and they wanted to purchase it for an upcoming exhibition that they were doing called mm. Melbourne Now. Uh, it was one of the first works that was purchased for that exhibition and was kind wow. of highlighted, I guess, for being part of it. It was an exhibition of over 400 local artists in the end uh, that wow. were from Melbourne and shown. It was, it was a changing of the change of direction, change of director for the gallery here. And it was basically their first exhibition after coming down from the Queensland uh, Gallery of Modern Art, the GOMA Gallery. They came down here, both the director and vice director, and just wanted to start the whole programming off with a bang. Uh, anyway, long story short is they, they purchased that work. It was embedded into that exhibition maybe, it was 12 months later after initially showing the work and, and it being sold to, uh, as one edition to the gallery. 12 months later, they opened this big exhibition and it was just one small part of the exhibition but I heard one of the curators from the National Gallery said to me just wrote a random email saying the marketing department has come up with an idea they, they'd love an artist to paint the billboard on the side of the the National Gallery for the exhibition would you oh, be wow. would you be interested 
So it wasn't it wasn't nece- it wasn't necessarily like a curator saying, you know, this is an artist. We're going to put them on the on the billboard. It was through the marketing department. It was through the marketing department. But that's that's kind of the way that all all of my interesting opportunities seem to happen. They kind of happen in a way that it's just by chance and by luck. And then, so I expressed strong interest and also I expressed interest in doing it live in situ rather than just painting mm-hmm. a billboard. For me, you know, the scale of the billboard, it was like 17 metres long, eight metres high. There was no way in which I could paint that anywhere anyway, I guess. <laughs> and with the gravity flow of my work, it needed to be installed for it to kind of have, be able to paint in the particular way I, I do. So, yeah, I was lucky enough that they they went for it. They marketed it quite significantly. There was a lot of press, maybe way too much press than I'd ever dealt with. And, yeah, in some ways it was more of a publicity stunt than it was a sincere curated public painting on the side of the gallery but I turned I turned it into that for myself yeah well it's like whether you're you come in through the back door or the side door it's like any door that opens you just have to take that first step in and then you know build from there yes for sure for sure Yeah, and people are always going to be coming to you with their own intentions or plans of what the project is, but it's like, it's your art, so you can can use that as an opportunity to make it into the project that you want to fulfill your vision, and and, yeah. For me, it was great, because while my video in inside was a conceptual piece I was using fire extinguishers and throwing buckets of paint, but it wasn't my it wasn't my purely abstract composition. It was, it was something different. This was an opportunity for me to um, speak to my hometown of Melbourne on a big scale. The audience numbers for this exhibition and going to that show were, you know, over 700,000 apparently. And, you know, on the, si- mm. on the side of the gallery, you know, no, no one doesn't notice that going in. So I knew that it was going to be able to get my work seen and re-seen in a way because I hadn't painted like this for about six years, seven years. So there are some people that would have known about my work a while ago and then seen it reappear all of a sudden, I guess. And for me, that was really exciting and interesting. The budget was nothing. It was like two grand, if, if anything. I mean, they were, able, they were able to supply the paint sponsorship, but we're talking a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty big scale venture and separate to that like the value for the gallery you know was way beyond what they were you know giving me at the time but you know from one thing to the next you take whatever you can and it did to answer your initial question from like 10 minutes ago this was like for me something that was going to create further work and it did it put it put my work back in the spotlight and minds of a lot of interior architects, architects, the, the type of people that I've been year by year lucky enough to have projects with that have sustained my practice and been able to keep me working professionally as an artist. 
Yeah, I feel like being able to assess those opportunities early on going into it and recognizing like, okay, maybe this project doesn't have the biggest budget, but I know that it's going to get my work out in front of the people that I really want to see it or, you know, I'm able to experiment and try something new or like whatever the value is, I think being able to determine that and, um, you know, to... I still take on those projects, but kind of do it on your own terms. And I love even in these last few examples you've shared that, um, you know, you've been able to transform them into something that's really worked for you. And maybe it's not what was initially proposed, but, you know, you came back to them with your own idea. And I feel like that's our uh, the opportunity that we do have as artists to kind of like sell somebody else on our own vision and to try and, you know, it's great when opportunities come to us, but to really think about where, we see our work headed and, you know, maybe you're proposing something a little bit different, but, um, yeah, just finding a way to make those opportunities work for you. Yeah, definitely. I think that each project I have done has always led to the next one on some, in some way. Uh, and therefore I have had commissions or opportunities where other people have a vision. I never step away from my particular style. I never commission in a way that is completely away from the way that I make work intuitively and abstraction and mm-hmm. working with, you know, gravity, drip painting, extinguishers, but I also work with airless sprayers to create more atmospheric painting. Essentially, the way that I work is what people see and if they respond to it and they come to me, then it's because they like what I do. So I never go, I I don't have a huge amount of work, but I have the work that comes to me rather than going out and seeking it. Because if you seek something uh, for money, I mean, I mean, I seek seek locations for my own projects to uh, create my own unique work, but to seek projects for economic benefit I rather people come to me because they already know what I do and they're coming to me for a reason and mm-hmm. I can assess whether when they come to me whether it's worth my while um, getting involved or not and that that can mean less money but more creative um, freedom and like we we're talking about with the um, NGV billboard there might be more scope for me to find an audience with the way that I want to organically work as opposed to other opportunities where it might be more money in it, a little bit more restrictive. It might be in a restaurant or, you know, a commercial shop or something. But Mm -hmm. at the time, you just got to take the project because you're still working in your own style. It's going to be hard work. It's going to, you know, the client is going to get economic benefit out of it. So I have to weigh up you know, whether the price is right in relation to the money that they might make with my work integrated into their vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that comes into play when I'm thinking about proposals that come my way as well. Look, the pandemic threw that out the window a little bit, a month, like a year into the pandemic. I kind of, after a lot of lockdowns about what was it, 18 months ago, I think, you know, coming out of that first intense lockdown of the pandemic globally, you know, a lot of people were coming to me with projects and 
I burnt myself out for that first six months coming out of the pandemic because I took mm. on more projects than I should have and I took on I took them on at sometimes half the amount um, financial half the budget than I would normally do a project because there was just this uncertainty and mm-hmm. I guess lag of time and you know, I was just trying to catch, play catch up like everyone else in, 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 in a, you know, a lot of people yeah. kind of felt like, oh, we've got to get back to it. But I kind of probably at that point, I did what I normally don't do. And that is say no to things, you know, you know, so you're never too old to kind of learn, <laughs> make mistakes and mm. that, that you've actually always been cautious about <laughs> yeah. because circumstances change and you're like, people come to you and they're like we've got this we've only got this amount and you're like all right I can fit that in it all it all sounds fine at the time week by week and then you know that it's later on it's it's later on when it catches up and that's something I think you know I thought I'd probably gotten better at but I think it's something you always have to be very aware of Mm mm-hmm yeah it's definitely something, I mean, I, I know I can relate to that. And especially with when times are especially uncertain, it's easy to be like, well, I just need to, I just need to accept what is coming my way because this is opportunity and like I have bills and I don't know what things are going to look like in the coming weeks, months, years. But it also, I don't know that there can be like a coming back to yourself within that we were like, okay, time to reestablish time to try to set things a little bit into a better position for, for what I need for my work and and my time and, and for how much I need to be paid for my time and, and whatnot. I definitely learned that lesson. I probably will constantly be relearning it because I keep setting myself up for like little, little things. And I'm like, why did I agree to that? I don't, that's not what I want to do. But I yes, know, I guess it's sometimes take, taking on those projects that you learn like, okay, that's not for me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I kind of like, was like, there was a project that was offered to me by some, I guess they're kind of like uh, event designers. Um, and I know them well, and I'd worked on a project alongside them with another initiative uh, about four or five years ago. And I remember that project was about 10K and that's the kind of the base amount for commercial projects that take weeks of energy out of me as well as materials and, you know, take me away from my own practice. And so they were offering, it was, an, uh, it was a project I did about, a month, uh, about two months ago and it was it was a very small project, an alcohol company connected to them that support artists and projects. And, you know, they let the artists create work exactly the way that they want to. Um, and that's, that's fine. And then it's shown within a, a venue. Uh, and there was like 5K on offer. And I was all, immediately, I just thought of the, um, the models back in like the 90s. They were like, we don't we don't get out of bed for less than 10k you know <laughs> that's my mantra now <laughs> it's like <laughs> and also i through the pandemic i've been you know watching a lot of the what's the uh the 
it's like the hip hop versus acts um, done mm-hmm. by Swiss Beats. And fat, mm-hmm. I, I watch. <laughs> there's like this Fat Joe was having a conversation with Swiss Beats, and he's like, "Yesterday's price is not today's price." And now everyone <laughs> has been using that um, that mantra uh, across across sort of popular culture mm-hmm. through the pandemic. It's that that's my mantra now. It's like yesterday's price is not today's price. And if that means mm-hmm. like, if that means having to say no to things or just saying, look, no, this is the base amount for, for what I'm going to do there because there's commercial gain for the client and it's taking me and my energy away from my sole creative practice, which, which, you know, I guess with, with being an, artist you try and create well for me personally I try and find as much time as I can to create projects that are that are just me choosing the way in which I want to make work and that's never easy that's Mm -hmm. the restrictions of client-based projects are often easier (laughs) because if you if you're choosing your own direction you know you're coming up with something new and you're you're coming up with your next step which needs to be completely unique or mm-hmm. or drawing from pressure. that in the past <laughs> yeah yeah it can it can but there's an excitement and a u- uniqueness to that uh, mm-hmm. and i guess i got a little bit away from what i'm saying but i i think that if other people are coming it's very important to take those projects because they pay the bills they they allow me to make work in the studio or that may or may not have commercial success but it's me being able to invest in that through other projects that are allowing me to live as an artist Yeah, well, I did want to ask you about your approach to personal projects um, versus commercial ones, because I know you exhibit your work in galleries and you have a really strong personal practice, um, but then you've also taken on commercial projects or public works. And so I'm curious how you've been able to distribute your time amongst those, or it also sounds like some of these commercial projects are what are helping to fund maybe some of the ambitious personal projects. So whatever angle you want to speak to, um, but I'm I'm curious about that because I feel like so many artists are, I, I feel like we're always trying to navigate that space of like, how do we support the work that we really want to make? Um, how can we balance between, you know, the work that we're getting hired to do and, the, and then just driving our work forward? So yeah, curious how you've been able to navigate those two worlds. I think that... The budgets and the fees that I've got for projects go up and down and have done as early as when I painted that billboard at the NGV back in 2013. Off the back of that being a 2K project, I got my first project that was really significant and that was with uh, RMIT University and it was a collaboration with an architect firm and they were basically turning a car park into an urban square where there was a parks, recreation, basketball courts. Overall, it was a basically about a 40K project plus about 15K materials fee. And 
this mm-hmm. was this was nothing I'd ever come close to working with. Um, this is in mm-hmm. Australian dollars, I guess, comparative to American dollars, we're about 70 cents to your dollar. But I guess uh, it was massive for me because that was right on the hinge of still, I was still kind of, I'd won a couple of art prizes that had taken me away from like t- a couple of like one or no one 10k art prize around the same time as making that 5k three channel video leading into the NGV project it was it was right on the edge of obviously I wanted to be a full-time artist but I was still working as a removalist I was also doing lawn mowing for my cousin's husband's business in the suburbs you know mm. all of those things were kind of intertwined Mm -hmm. and I just needed this project to come out of nowhere which it did and but it it didn't come out of nowhere because I did take that two grand billboard project with the NGV I did make that you know 20k project for five grand um you know and then people saw it and then I got this opportunity with the university so I feel like because I was ambitious because I extended beyond my means you know I was able to get an opportunity and you know I thought I thought that those types of opportunities would come regularly the university one which was about 40k but the truth of the matter is in the years following that most of my ambitious wall projects were three to five to eight grand if if I was lucky you know and I mm-hmm. I would take on commercial projects for probably no less than sort of 5k but they were big scale ambitious walls and then other ones that maybe were 3k they were kind of one one wall which was an example of that was in 2016 for a festival called Sugar Mountain Festival it was it was like a three story wall facing the festival part of the Victorian College of the Arts, I probably used about 10 grand worth of paint on that wall. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, it was a festival of, a, you know, I think Nas was playing. Like, there were a lot of really interesting creatives and artists involved. It was a, it was a, it was a mishmash of, like, visual artists and music artists. And... The dance floor was the car park which my wall faced onto. So, you know, I got a massive rush out of the idea that people would be, you know, vibing with my work, you know. And Mm -hmm. and so that was a project where I'm like, it doesn't doesn't matter about the money. And that will create further opportunities, similar to the, you know, it was three years after the NGV billboard, but I think that was another project like that, that, you know, was seen by interesting people. A lot of creative people would have gone to that festival and they remember that work and they came to me with projects down the line, potentially. Yeah, it's like you really never know who's going to experience your work in those settings. And it's like you're doing that value assessment of like, maybe this doesn't have the biggest budget, but you can see the potential in it or what it could lead to. And so saying yes to those opportunities and... I really feel like people have to see your work too. It's like, you know, it's not enough to just 
like say, oh, I can do this thing or I can, especially if you're wanting to take on these ambitious or large scale projects, it's like you have to already be doing them for people to come to you and hire you to do more of them. And so, you know, there's all this like upfront investment, like you're saying of, you know, time or you're kind of doing these overly ambitious projects with little resources in order to be able to command those bigger budgets. Yes, definitely. And I guess my work is around that time and when I when I can make big scale work, you know, when you're when a person is immersed in that, you know, I mean, dating back to like the mid 90s when I first was interested in art, you know, I would see Christo and Jean-Claude work, environmental mm-hmm. art, just the really large scale land art projects mm-hmm. or you know, I guess some of the large Keith Haring murals that I would see in books in the 90s, you know, there were a couple of three, four story high kind of murals of his, which, you know, pre-internet, you know, this is kind of like books. Yeah. What What's the ambition? Like the scale, you could tell the scale had an emotive impact on the audience person just through even seeing the documentation but you can never you can never kind of come close to that when you're actually within ambitious scaled work i think and it's it's dwarf it's it's the way that the natural landscape if you're in a national park the way that you know a large waterfall or a, a huge expanse dwarfs you and you become immersed in that and kind of that's that's part of the lure for me or was definitely in terms of making making that that big scale immersive abstract painting. Hey, it's Nicole, your Beyond the Studio co-host, and I want to tell you a little more about Astropad Studio. I don't know if y'all remember me talking about my large painting commission last year, but I actually used an iPad and Apple Pencil to create the digital studies for those paintings. Astropad Studio can turn your iPad into a drawing tablet by mirroring your favorite Mac or PC desktop apps directly onto your iPad. So it combines the flexibility of your Apple Pencil with the power of full desktop apps like Photoshop and Illustrator. And it's Amanda, your other Beyond the Studio co-host. As someone who works primarily with a large flatbed scanner and a desktop computer, being able to work from anywhere but still have the same quality of work sounds like just what my practice needs, especially now that I'm beginning to travel with work. As artists, I know we tend to ask a lot from our tools, and Astropad Studio is engineered for the most demanding creative workflow. It guarantees low latency performance over Wi-Fi or USB cable, so you can set up your workspace on the go. As someone who really values hands-on methods with my work, having digital tools where I can replicate both my process and sense of mark making just as easily by customizing my workflow with things such as programmable gestures, custom pressure curves and pressure smoothing and unlimited shortcuts is important. So whether you're a fine artist, illustrator, or a digital artist, Astropad Studio is the ultimate iPad app for artists. Millions of artists already rely on Astropad Studio for Mac, and now it's available for PC artists too. If you're ready to take your creative workflow to the next level, you can start your 30-day free trial of Astropad Studio today. Visit astropad.com via the link in our show notes to get started. 
Plus, Beyond the Studio listeners save 10% on your first year when you enter the promo code BEYOND at checkout. Yeah, and so all this while you're doing these projects um, where you're you know, having to be really resourceful with either where you're getting materials or kind of taking on, you know, projects thinking that it will lead to bigger things. Are you, I'm just curious, like sort of practically when uh, clients are coming to you, are they typically giving you the budget that they have to work with? Or were you starting to get a sense of what it would actually take to execute your work, like in the fullest sense, um, as far as like tracking materials or like knowing what the costs were. Um, I mean, do you typically, I imagine as you're like doing more and more of this type of work, you're getting a better sense of what is actually required to be able to do it in a way that's sustainable. Sure. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's around that time. That's when, you know, you would get people coming to you saying they have this amount or that amount. I was also... So those projects really did start to build momentum? Uh, yeah. I mean, not not on a crazy scale, but mm-hmm. to the point where I was like, well, I actually connected with a gallerist slash arts manager, but he was his name's David, David Hager, and uh, he came to the launch of my... RMIT project, uh, even though I was working with a different gallery back then. he I kind of connected with him early on and he understood my work. And at that point, we kind of, he wasn't necessarily a public art project manager at that point, but, mm. you know, we started kind of fleshing things out and, and putting together a few proposals. I needed help with that because mm. in terms of putting together succinct concepts, wording, putting a nicely packaged PDF together. If I'm approached by, you know, some architects for putting together a pitch for a particular project um, where there might be me, it might be a few other people I'm pitching against, you know, that type of thing wasn't something that came natural to me. So I, yeah, I, I, I connected with David and we started kind of putting together um, proposals and you know, we, we developed a, a a strong bond and partnership through that time. And, you know, we would probably only get one out of five smaller projects and one out of ten of ambitious projects if we were lucky. But, mm-hmm. you know, I quickly realised that we, we had quite an organic way of working. And, you know, if I'd get something, then, you know, we would we would then organically work out the percentage that he earned from that rather than have some sort mm-hmm. of contract at the beginning, you know? Right. Because we went into this sort of becoming as, I guess he was uh, very, he responded as an, like to my art, uh, mm-hmm. number one. He liked my art and that's how we, we connected. Um, and then I guess his passion for the way that I make projects. And he, I, I guess he enjoyed that process of just actually being part of the project and being part of, he felt that that is, the, is part of the art making. And, and he, in, in some of the first projects we did together, I guess, you know, he felt an, had an, he had an ownership in making that happen too. And I think that that, that was something we kind of worked alongside 
we we kind of learnt that as we went along, in a way. Now, I guess he knew an in- interior designer that had an opportunity in 2016 with uh, an entrepreneur in Bali who was opening up a restaurant. And so he self-initiated the whole project and we went over there, painted the interior of the shell before the restaurant got built. It was probably like it was about a 25K project, I think. And, you know, for that project, I, I was like, after costs, you, you, you came to me with that project. So we're just going to split that down the middle, you know, straight up. But in other projects where it might be less work that he's operating with, there's probably a 20% kind of fee that comes into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the economics of it. But without, without his professionalism, his communication, and also dealing with things that sometimes, you know, interrupt the artist process... Uh, that was that was key for me to be able to have someone that I could lean on when my hands were covered in paint in the studio and 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 someone was calling yeah. about about <laughs> something you know that was that was a big thing for me and uh, we still work on projects to this day. We had a meeting the other day just out in the suburbs where there's an old industrial area is being turned into a new kind of uh, business park place that's cool it's got a brewery burger place and the the people there they want me to paint a wall in the car park just to kind of mm-hmm. make something bland look interesting and so we went out there for a meeting the other day and he called me just this morning to remind me to put some palette options together and you know <laughs> I've got to get onto that this afternoon and just kind of do that and we 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 had the meeting on site they were like, are you going to show us what you're going to do? And I said, no, that's not, not how I operate. You know, you've seen mm. my, my previous work. You've seen, I've got a large folio that you can talk about with me, about what you respond to, what you like. And, you know, I'm happy to draw on that for commissions. I'm happy to go back to particular ways that I have worked or choose a particular color uh, palette option in any instance but at the same time I do need the freedom in the process of painting that the the balance of colors the composition everything that happens for me happens uh, as an improvised painting mm-hmm. there are not many projects I do where I plan uh, what's going to happen and for me that's a massive limitation too most most public art projects, you they expect a plan. Um, I'm I'm kind of like the opposite of a lot of the way muralists get their opportunities when they're pitching. So in a way, it's a good thing though. It's a very good thing for me. I find is that because the people like I talked about earlier on, I don't go looking for opportunities. People come to me. So if they're coming to me, they already know what I do and they know. They know what they want, and I fit into that. And then further to that, that's when I try and push for as much freedom as possible. Now, I guess, interestingly, like that um, commercial job, they're drawing upon the colour palette options of a very recent project that I did. So in a way, and, and I had a lot of freedom with that too, 
there's a regional uh, gallery called Warnable Art Gallery and the director of that gallery was actually a curator, vice director of the RMIT gallery way back when I did that mm. basketball court. She has been in the rural community running this gallery for a good six or seven years and came to me in the lockdowns last year. Or she phoned me up and she was like, look, there's this interesting opportunity. I've always had you in the back of my mind, but the gallery needs to be repainted by the council in about six months. I was thinking if they're gonna paint it anyway, maybe we could get you to just paint the entire thing before they repainted a plain color and we could you oh, know wow, yeah. we could we could create an interesting project during the summer uh and you know like the the conversation was just related to i'd made some paintings in the studio they were soft luminous kind of responses to kind of i guess silvery gray sunsets where you get that kind of post sunset kind of uh, glow in the cloudy skies. And that's, that's some of the compositions on the studio paintings I was working with mid last year. Perfectly, the Vanessa, the director, she was like, I love what you've been doing in the studio. We have these amazing sunsets down here at the gallery. I think it'd be great if you just expanded on that onto the gallery walls. So in a way, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to speak on is that the work that I was making for myself in the studio mid last mm -hmm. year was seen by someone sympathetic to my work that had an opportunity for me that was great. It wasn't a massive fee. It was council based painting a massive gallery, huge outlay. You know, it was probably about a 10 grand project and we tried to get an extra five grand through a grant. Um, we were able to get that, but it basically was absorbed. The director was like, oh, that's for your fee. And I was like, no, we need to cover the windows in vinyl just to create more of a canvas space. So I just kept on feeding money back into that project because it was, for me, more aligned with my art practice than it was something that someone else wanted, you know. Mm -hmm. But the beauty about that project is that the community loved it they responded to it there was there was because it was a country a rural community there were there was like headlines in the newspaper and and polls about like whether people liked it or not and it was a little bit div divisive but it is a creative town and overall people enjoyed the change but what it did was it was just it was it, it enabled me to kind of first of all, create a big project coming out of all these lockdowns and enjoy traveling again out of the city and, and creating a big project, even though it was hard work. And, but it, it was able to kind of extend my studio practice back onto an outdoor surface. And then now yeah. this, this new opportunity, they, the palette options that they're interested in are those soft, luminous colors that were involved in that project. Now, that suits me well because I've, I've actually got a lot of paint left over from that project. And so when I, had the meeting yeah. the, when I had the meeting the other day, they were like, oh, we love these tones and that project. And I was like, great. That's, <laughs> Already got that, the materials. That, I've got the materials <laughs> go. mixed up and that's going to make my life easier. And also it's not too much of a diversion away from what I've been doing recently too. 
So it's nice when those things can align in many ways, I guess. Yeah, and when your personal practice is fueling these public or commercial projects that you're getting, and that's really the dream is that, you know, you're you're being commissioned for the work that you would want to be creating anyways, and that it just feels like an extension of work that you're creating in the studio. And it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this. And uh, you've already answered so many other questions I had just around how you're balancing between the administrative side or like creating proposals with working in the studio, especially because your work is so like physical and immersive. And I can't imagine it's just easy to switch gears and be working in front of a computer from, you know, the painting that you're doing. And so uh, to have, you know, some support on the project management side or be working with certain partners that can help with that um, is really good to know. And then also, I personally was really interested in how how you were translating your studio work into some of these more commercial contexts, because you're also a painter that works really intuitively. And I've always been curious about that, whether you're able to, you know, preserve that process when you're working with a partner or working with a client or if you know it's there's resistance there um, because again people like to see what you're gonna create and so to put that level of faith and trust in you as the artist um, that they're they're not getting like a mock-up of what the final piece is gonna look like so it's it's really exciting to hear that you've been able to carve out the space for yourself where you know you have the body of work and the people that are coming to you um, know your process and they know what you do so they're willing to take that leap of faith yeah in a way that's kind of my I, I've already said no to projects by choosing to work in that way, if you know what I mean. Like, right. It's like you're not going to be a fit for everything, but you've created this context. Yeah, filtering out what isn't closely connected with what I do by not, not applying for certain things where I have to play by the rules of that client or that organisation or fit into what they're after. Like, I... I do say no to some projects that come my way, but more than anything, that's normally due to like a combination of the budget not being high enough and the time not being there at the same time. It's not mm-hmm. due it's not due to working outside of the way that I normally would. I mean, look, sometimes people ask if I could, you know, paint in a completely different way <laughs> to do something in particular it's not often but you're just like no that's mm-hmm. that's not for me you know you, right. you know like I mean that the other thing is like you do see opportunities and come across people that are after something that is definitely not what you do and the best thing you can do there is think about the artists that do fit and and try and create other opportunities for other artists I mean that's one one way in which you can kind of you know i guess keep the community connected and getting the right work is kind of when you know that there might be a good fit you know try and make that happen mhm mm. yeah but yeah. look i think the other thing just related to i just wanted to add was you do get i do get excited when certain things that I never thought might come my way, come my way. And it is, weirdly enough, it's through, I mean, Instagram has done amazing things, especially for, Mm. you know, artists like myself that 
leaving Australia, which is so far away from Europe and America, the instantaneous connection of Instagram and the way that I've sort of slowly over a 10 year period just made sure that I've made the right, you know, I follow the right interesting artists that are connected to what I do and so on. In in some way or another, some people have, you know, seen my work and it's come into their come to their awareness through their their Instagram or or what have you. And so just before the pandemic started, I I was doing a project for a woman named Marlene that runs a project in the Netherlands called Murals Inc. And hmm. you know she she came to me and she said, I've got this project painting out the front of the Rotterdam Art Fair and I want you to be one of the three artists. It wasn't, you know, massive um, budget, but working with people that get what I do and, you know, program, oh, yeah. program that type of, and champion that type of work alongside other artists. And I was able to meet her, Rutger De Vries, who also works with extinguishers in a very different way. And I was able to meet a lot of other interesting studio-based artists at the Rotterdam Art Fair. And, you know, that was just something that kind of, you know, I never saw that coming. And similarly, something else has come up off the back of painting the art gallery in Warrnambool, um, which I was talking about, the, the sunset, luminous sunset colours. Now, for someone's been following me that works for an institutional gallery in Europe and they contacted me maybe a few months ago and said, look, we've got this structure in our grounds which we want you to paint in 2023. And it was like, what? You know, like, and how? How do you, you just know. They saw my posts about my picture that I posted of the, the gallery painting and they just knew that that was exactly what they wanted. So mm-hmm. no, no, no process, no, you know, proposing or trying to compete against other artists. Yeah. It's just this completely different place. Someone tuned in with what I do and was like, that's exactly what we've been wanting for this particular opportunity. And, you know, our, you know, our time difference now, it's late there in San Fran and early here. You know, I, I wake up sometimes and I'm like a double take on my email going, what? <laughs> you know, getting an email. Oh yeah. An email from Europe. It's three a.m. Who's emailing? We've got this. We've got this amazing opportunity, and you're like, wow. So you know, at times it's very hard in the studio too. You know, and the grind is real. I mean, I've dedicated myself to this for like over twenty years, and I'm like day in day out. I'm still kind of like sacrificing a lot in life to do what I love and at times I question that I sh- you know like like any artist but it's it's doing particular it's it's staying true to yourself with particular projects taking and I still take low budget opportunities if I know artistically they're great if they're what I need to kind of mm-hmm. maybe create something else I never saw coming and and this this one is something I never saw coming as well so yeah. that's exciting I, I'm gonna hopefully travel to Europe in 18 months and and do this incredible project um, at a gallery there. So, you know, it's, I would just say that, you know, you kind of, you go through periods 
I go through periods where I'm making commercial projects, maybe painting, you know, interior design projects or restaurant interiors to kind of keep my art practice going. You know, it's it's hard work, but there's always something interesting around the corner that, you know, mm-hmm. you're doing this for um, that comes up, it shows shows itself and you know you, st- you meet interesting people and take your practice in another direction which you know you, you never th- you never saw coming really yeah well that might be a good segue to talk a little bit about um, the exhibition that you have in New York um, because I think by the time this episode comes out uh, we'll be right around the time of that show and I know you've been working to prepare for that in your studio lately um, so I wondered if you could tell us about that opportunity and how it came about and what you've been working towards recently sure yeah uh again instagram i think a young person named aria who runs a he runs an instagram called nyc curator nyc curator i think and he has a really interesting aesthetic nice minimal abstract aesthetic he'd actually been on my email list for about three years requesting catalogs when I sent out emails I never you know was like thinking much of it Um, but he was just paying attention for a long period of time and Mm. he and another person Tess they've partnered to take over a shop in well a ground floor and basement uh, shop that uh, they were able to get I guess good rent on after the pandemic uh, forced forced a, a business out. They had a dream to be able to create a gallery together, and it's very early days. They've had a, an inaugural group show, and they're just about to open their first solo show this week. Uh, it's called A M Bajir B J B J I E R E A dot M Bajir. It's in yeah Tribeca neighborhood and it's it's a one year initial project for them and they contacted me you know six months ago and said we're keen to keen to have you involved if you want to take the plunge uh, take the risk and it is it's a massive risk for me too because I don't know them that well and we haven't been able to have a huge amount of dialogue I think that for me my learnings in the art in the commercial gallery art world have been significant I mean it's all about relationships and you know I think that that's why I feel good about this early on because the person Aria who's sort of been following my practice enough he responds to it you know just like David understands my work and responds to it the right way he's passionate about it that's that's the start you need Um, Mm. and then to build on that in terms of the trust and the journey that that comes with trusting in sort of showing your work with with a gallery that's that's something I'm still trying to learn and get right long term you know but you know I feel good about I feel excited very excited about an opportunity to show work in America for the first time in a gallery Um, and you know, New York City, I've, I was there 2013, enjoying going to all the galleries and, you know, heading out to the Dia Beacon or the Whitney or, you know, wherever, you know, there's 10 things you can do every day. 
it's exciting to be there in spring and be able to have an opportunity to show paintings around the, the time that they're showing. They've got art fairs and so on. So if anything, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's nothing to be too scared about. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if we've learned anything through your story, it's just that, you know, every opportunity seems to kind of lead into the next unexpected one. And you just have to continue making those connections and taking those risks when it feels right for your work. Yes, for sure, for sure. The work that I'm showing is my ongoing studio painting series, which I, I do experiment with, with a few other types of ways of making studio paintings, but Gravity System Response is uh, an ongoing series which I started in 2015 and I've painted over 200 paintings of in this, in this way. Um, and it began with a few quite large two by three meter canvases where I brought what I was doing uh, on outdoor walls into the studio in a way that I'd wanted to be able to do outdoors but never could. And that involved using a lot of water to break down the paint, uh, both at the top but also at the bottom of the paint, where I guess something that's quite unique about this, you know, I mean, the, 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 obviously there is a deep history, a long history of drip painting, gravity painting within the art world. And something that I've found, I've created, I feel is unique, is the is breaking down the paint at the halfway point and creating a really soft, um, soft drip gradient where the work feels like it's quite quite hover, hovering almost. And there's also, I guess, a depth a depth and layering that I go, that I create, that I try and make as unique as possible. I think, you know, when you think about your studio podcast name, Beyond the Studio, when I'm in the studio, I'm also always aware of what I know of art history, artists that have come before me, even artists that are working today in similar ways. I think you always have to, as an artist, you have to be respectful of who has um, created their own pathways, um, developed those. And, you know, you can, you can certainly, painting in this way, in the way that I do, where you hand over kind of half of the control in a way is, is, is laws of physics. And it, it's me projecting the paint onto the linen with water. You know, all these organic flows, they, they are repeated uh, across time and history in terms of so many artists that have worked in this way and so I guess for me I try and become be very aware of that whether it's knowing the work of Hiroshi Senju or Pat Steer or uh, who else I guess there's so many there's so many artists that have worked in this way but it's just being aware of how people have created their own mark making and made it their own and ensuring that you're aware of it. Not, I mean, like just subconsciously, like I'm aware of what I'm trying to make in the studio all the time is unique. And it, it is, sometimes my processes are easy to 
like control and other times it's a massive challenge. Kind of related to process, and I know we're kind of getting to the end of our conversation here too, but I did want to ask you, um, because I know, you know, we were talking about the scale of your work, talking about the work you're making personally in the studio lately, and we may have mentioned this before we got into the official podcast recording, but you, um, within the last few years, bought your own studio building to be able to really outfit it around your process, Um, and I wondered if you could just briefly tell us about what that process has been like and how you've been able to accommodate the the scale of your work. Sure. Yeah, well, I like I've been through a few studios before the studio I've specifically built for myself uh, three years ago. I was sharing uh, I was sh- sharing a studio with about 12 different creatives and artisans, metal workers, shoemakers, I was lucky enough to have a a big space at the back of a big complex, but it was nowhere near as big as I kind of needed to really expand on my painting practice the way that I wanted. But it was was a great space in terms of being able to create a mess. Um, At that time, in that older studio, I created these sort of above floor gutters where I would catch the water and the drip of the paint uh, coming down so the whole floor wasn't covered in water and and, and and wet paint. Even then, the way that that was kind of roughly put together, I was slipping and sliding all over the studio at times when I was making some of the work that I was, some of the larger studio paintings. So I, at that time, I had this kind of idea. I was like, look, if you could create a lot, if you could get, get a hold of a space that you could have a raised floor that was slightly angled, have a gutter at the end of it. It was large enough that you could kind of move around areas and there would be wet areas near an extraction fan and dry areas where you could kind of ferry the paintings across to, but it was all in one space. That would be the ideal space. So I, I guess it was having that, it was working in a smaller space that wasn't big enough that kind of I started dreaming about what would be the best space for the way that I work. And I guess I just started looking at, um, at concrete warehouses off the plan in industrial areas on the, out, on the outskirts of, on the, a, a little bit further out from, from the creative hub that I was in. And just started, yeah, trying to work out whether I could financially, you know, put down a, enough of a deposit for one that would, you know, I'd be able to basically deal with the repayments, keep living as an artist and that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it was kind of touch and go and I'd, I'd built up enough money and dad was able to help me out, push the deposit up a bit enough that the repayments weren't bad, you know. So the, the yeah, the dream was there early on when I had didn't have the right space and then something came up and... In, in fact, I was able to get this space that I'm in because I was looking at these for a long time. Most of them sold out off the plan, but they weren't they weren't available anymore when I needed when I was finally in a position to to get a, a place. It was only in the last month before they got registered by the council that this person that owned one of them uh, couldn't couldn't get the bank loan, and it came on the market again, and I was like 
it's now or never, just jump in and do it. And it was a great time to do it in a mm. way because it was before the pandemic, it was before the, mm -hmm. what we're facing now, especially in Australia with the building material shortage, the, um, you yeah. know, the, the inflation of everything. Like I built the, the kind of the, the storage space for my paintings the the studio the loft for my office all of that was built off um a lot of swaps as well the builder the builder was um a friend of an architect and i i swapped two large paintings for their services i still had to pay oh, wow. i still had I to pay that. for the building uh materials uh -huh. sorry still had to pay for the materials and their builders to actually make it but overall the whole planning of the project was okay, yeah. uh, was a barter and then i also with all the the people that i i shared the old studio with there was a cabinet maker there i was able to swap a painting for the kitchen the bookshelf there's so many different things i was able to swap paintings for to bring the costs of building the specially made kind of space i needed so, you know, it was still very costly exercise and, but, you know, in terms of it was the right time to do it pre-pandemic when my ambition for everything was sky high. I mean, interestingly enough, like I had a, a few really big scale projects that are actually dead now and there was one contract that mm -hmm. was in excess of 150K to do 30 paintings for a hotel wow. in the city. That is dormant. I wouldn't say dead, but it's, it's dormant. And, um, yeah, you know, yeah. th those, those projects gave me, right on at the, same, at the time when I got this place, I felt like I was in a far better position than I was, you know, in terms of making it work. So... You know, between then and now, I've been taking on a lot of small jobs to keep things rolling in a way that pre-pandemic, you know, and making big strides and taking big risks, you know, like I'm still doing that, but you've got to, I've got to take things when they come my way. I've got to take things when they come my way. If, if they fit into the way that I want to work, of course, but, you know, to, to create my perfect space you know I've got to work hard I've got to work hard to keep that and the funny thing is I was thinking before I I had this got on the podcast with you I mean for a long time my thinking while while I haven't had to have another job for the last decade my thinking is with the way that I work as hard as I do it's just so as I don't have to ever go back to a normal job because mm -hmm. the, prob the problem is I don't the problem always was because I've always I've studied art I've given myself over to art I'm not qualified for anything other than average jobs like I was lawn lawn mowing or I was doing d dishes at a restaurant or I was you know moving furniture like those are the types of jobs <laughs> that I was able to get um, because yeah. I hadn't I hadn't created any other pathways for myself other than being an artist so my my desperation to continue working hard is so as I don't have to ever go into a position where I'm working like that. Having said that, I also worked for my mum, my late mother, 
who passed away in 2009, she ran a, a waste auditing business, like, and then she was involved in environmental sustainability working. She had her own business called Waste Audit, which basically had two two project two parts to it. We she had teams that would go into organisations and over a week long period they would collect the waste from that organisation and then have a team that would go through all of the waste bags on tables and put it into categories and that was I I did that through art school through my early years of making conceptual installation art if you like I mean a lot of my work around that time was based on environmental and waste projects so they fed into each other but what I what I'm getting at is I was working like dirty hard work off the back of her work ethic in order to be an artist and that her work ethic and getting up at you know five in the morning you know and working non-stop to get where she did you know that that's what gets me up every morning is just thinking and living that work ethic that she installed into me as well. Yeah, I feel like there's been such a great message around resourcefulness and working hard. And I just appreciate how transparent you've been too with everything from pricing to your process and um, really all of the behind the scenes that's gone into your work. And um, before we go, I just wanted to ask where um, people can find and follow your work. And um, if they are in New York, where can they... When and where can they see your work in person? Sure. Yeah, well, I guess the easiest way, I don't have a comprehensive website, but the best way you can just have a look at my Instagram, Ash underscore Keating. Uh, and if you want to message me for any catalog, PDFs, or, you know, I guess I've got a lot of different PDFs of my public artworks and previous uh, gallery catalogs uh so you know if anyone's listening that uh wants some in-depth reading and visuals i can send that to you so just hit me up uh with a direct message or and the exhibition is at am bajia in tribeca from around the 28th of april through to june 4th uh and i'll be posting yeah i'll be posting some images and details about the show in the coming month or two and yeah I sh- I'm hoping Perfect. I'm hoping to go over for the exhibition opening and stay in New York until about mid-May because I think a lot of the fairs are on in early May so just going to enjoy oh, that's great reconnecting with the world a little bit yeah getting on an air, yeah. international flight <laughs> it's going to be interesting yeah. I probably haven't been as succinct at times, like, but I think people that were listening, something that I didn't touch on was throughout the whole time, like, I've always documented my work really well. At times, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, the budgets of projects, if they're not high enough, then more often than not, that impacts on, on the quality of documentation. Because I always just feed into... I feed into the next project Um, and I reinvest everything that's coming into my projects I'm always spending I'm not trying to hoard the the savings Um, 
the bigger the budget, the bigger the uh, means for me to be able to get more videography or higher quality photographers on board and the better the document yeah. the better the documentation that leads on to being able to um, create a folio that enables you know I guess a better understanding from it's the way that people see my work most of my work yeah. is ephemeral a lot of the outdoor work it doesn't exist anymore and at times I've taken my own photographs if the budget is you know, two to three grand, some of those lower scaled projects. Um, but it's not ideal. And that's when I'm pushing for bigger budget projects, it's, it's so is there's a quality across the board, you know. So I would, say, I would say to anyone starting out early on, I mean, things are very different to the 20 years ago when digital photography was only just coming in when I was starting making work. A lot of my early work is all um, analog film, but... I made sure to document it myself and you can never have enough of that and you can never yeah. you can never get better <laughs> yeah. you've always got to like look to work with different people get better quality and it I would say that that's probably the most important consistent thing as well as obviously the quality of the work that I produce but alongside yeah. that yeah. I think that I would say that that's a very important thing project to project to to consider yeah yeah thank you so much for coming on the show for sharing your story for talking about your process and what you've been learning in in your studio and practice and um we're we so appreciate your time and and for you coming on to the show no thank you so much for having me yeah it's been fun that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. 